The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. 
Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send, after this destruction, a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoe of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the New Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. 
And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Okay. They, um, they have a second video that fills out the other side of it, and we will watch that whenever we get there. Uh, my plan is actually, where are my notes here? My plan is actually to watch that every now and again just as a reminder of the structure of the book. This is the problem of massive books. They're intimidating because you get lost. And um, because... By, by kind of necessity, you want to pass these around? Sure. Um, we have to read them in little pieces. After a while, it just sounds like you're reading the same thing over and over. It feels like there's no progression and you have no idea where you are. But this, um, this diagram can really help as a good wayfinding device. Like I said, this is the map at the entrance to the mall that helps you see where you are and where everything else is. So... Um, you can even see we're not even into the back half of the book. And there's already lots of messianic language that's going on in the front half of this particular book. We are going to be today covering basically this top box right here. This, this one right here where we have the old Jerusalem um, as it relates to the new Jerusalem. So... Uh, I won't pretend like we're going to read all of the five, every word of all five chapters, though I wish we could. Um, you will probably, um, it will be helpful, obviously I can't mandate much, but it would be helpful if you show up having at least skimmed, um, I would say at a minimum, the section headings of what we're going to deal with today. Um, but because this is so poetic, it's actually not that hard to read it in kind of one 20 or 30 minute sitting. Um, so these five chapters, and you can get a feel for the language. So next week, if you, if you kind of want to plan ahead, we're going to do 6 through 12. But now we will start with chapter 1. Um, as Matt shared a few weeks ago, the first verse of chapter 1 really sets kind of the historical context we are in. A, um, a period of Israel's history where the kingdom is no longer united. It's divided north and south, ten tribes to the north, two to the south, um, with very powerful enemies to the east, primarily Assyria at this time and one day Babylon. If you want to read prophecy or if you want to read prophetic books next to a more narrative structure, this book would run alongside Second Kings, and I can find actually kind of where they start to parallel quite well. Um, so those, the historical books, both Kings and Chronicles, will run alongside and talk about in narrative form and historical fashion what Isaiah is describing in this very kind of poetic, prophetic language. So we are going to um, crack this open. So verse 2 of chapter 1 you're going to immediately see that there's a bit of a courtroom scene. There's a bit of a, 
uh, a legal structure to what Isaiah is saying. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He is summoning witnesses against Israel. This is a, this is we're already going to see the kind of the judicial structure of this particular this covenantal lawsuit. Matt described that that prophets really were covenantal lawyers more than fortune tellers. They were men um, and women that were intended to speak for God and call people back to the covenant faithfulness and, and remind them of their covenant allegiance to to God. He says, "Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken." He says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The charges are levied. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. Again, appealing to the natural ability of creation to recognize its place in the order of things. But Israel does not know my people. Israel does not know my people do not understand. He says, animals get this. The creation will testify against you that you have stepped out of line. You are no longer in order underneath your creator. He says, because Israel does not know, they do not understand. So this is opening up our first section. And really, chapters 1 through 5 are going to deal with Israel's sin in three different contexts. So we're going to say Israel's sin, the first one is... And it's almost um, as the prophets tend to do, again, gives me hope, almost done in a mocking fashion, in a way that the, like, like points out like your absurdity in this regard. You have sinned despite your experience. And this is not going to reference a good experience. This is in spite of the difficulties you are now facing. How can you not see that this is, in many ways, God's judgment against you? He continues, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. He's pointing out their guilt. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. These are very scandalous terms to use against God's people. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. So he is going to deal with they, they've experienced, in contrary to their, their dismal experience, they continue to sin, and he's going to hear in this first section describe kind of the national sin. Sins of the nation. And if you, if you want to write down kind of verse numbers 1, 2 through 9, deals with the sins of the nation. He, can, he goes on, Why will you still be struck down? You're ignoring your experience. Why will you continue to rebel in light of everything you've experienced? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed or bound up or softened with oil. He says, your country, again, the national sin, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. And this is a point in Israel's history where they are no longer a superpower in the region. They are a ghetto country that is simply at the mercy of the fact that these, these armies aren't invading. But Israel does not have the military capital or the resources to, to deal with Assyria. They don't. They, they, I mean, they have divine favor in some respect, but army against army, Israel gets crushed compared to the size of the Assyrian army. 
Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And then here's kind of the commentary on the national sins. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. A bleak opening to such a beautiful book. But he says, like, the nation isn't right. You can't deal with your, with the, your enemies at the borders. And, and you're going to see, here's, he's going to explain, this really is a result of your religious sins. I think that goes through 20. Now he's going to describe, at the national level you're suffering, but it's mainly because at the, at the uh, cultic level, at the religious level, at the temple, you've failed to follow me as I prescribed. And you're going to see he's going to continually call them back to this covenant. So he goes on in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord again, that, that, that kind of litigious, that judicial language. This is a courtroom scene. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God. This is the, a, a kind of a, a subtle way of saying you completely ignored the law. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Um, there could not be perhaps more offensive names than to call people Sodom or Gomorrah. <laughs> What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Now it's going to start to sound really familiar. Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Probably heard that line before. So he's saying, your religion is, as it stands, ineffective. All your sacrifices do nothing. They're pointless. You're just wasting your time. He says in verse 12, when you, come to me, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He's going to continue to explain how useless their religion is. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He's saying everything that you do that you want me to find valuable, I will not accept it. It's looking pretty bleak for Israel. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, which is just a scathing line. The soul of Yahweh hates everything you do that you find valuable to Him. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your, when you spread out your hands, insinuating in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So, your religion is ineffective. It's a complete waste of time. I'm not going to um, hear you anymore, and I hate everything you're doing. This is the Lord speaking. But here's his, his remedy. He says, instead, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Now he's going to talk about what he requires to repair the relationship. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now you're going to hear the Lord's invitation to how this 
this incredible problem is going to eventually be resolved. And again, as the video said, to Isaiah's audience, this is going to do little more than harden their hearts. But looking thousands of years later, we get to see this is the Lord's way of working. He invites us. He says, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Here's the familiar part. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So he spends verse after verse telling them how filthy they are. And then he says, engage with me, and you're going to see how he wants to be engaged, and you will see effective cleansing. It'll be white as snow, white as wool. And then he says, this is, this is kind of the verse you want to circle in this section if you're a, a scribbler. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, translation, if you repent and do what I say, you shall eat the good of the land, that covenantal promise. But if you refuse and rebel, and they do, you shall be eaten by the sword, and they will be, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now there's some fascinating things here as we see the religious sins play themselves out. We see that there is a way out, that repentance and obedience are true options, and we see that judgment is, so mercy and judgment running alongside one another. Can't you, when someone asks the question, how do you reconcile God's um, grace and His wrath? I would be like, I don't know, why are you trying to divorce best friends? Like the Bible doesn't talk about them separately. The Bible just seems to say that they are both characteristics of the same, very consistent, very holy God. And he says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And then another very interesting thing, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, tells us one very, very important thing. Assyria is not powerful because Assyria is powerful. Assyria is the arm of the Lord's judgment. Um, this is where... And we have to be careful because this is, we're talking about a covenantal promise as it relates to the land which we no longer are under as the people of God. But this is where we have to be very careful talking about the Lord's will against foreign enemies. Um, I promise that our view of ISIS would have been very similar to Israel's view of Assyria and Babylon as thuggish invaders that have no business oppressing people the way they do. And the Bible just seems to say, the Lord understands what he's doing. Not that injustice shouldn't be dealt with. That pa this passage, is, it says right there, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fathers, plead the widow's cause. Like, you have to do these things. But it just seems to, to also place the, the judgment um, that people suffer under severe injustices as the Lord's in control. Um, we, we have conversations all the time as a staff about like how, actually we're doing a podcast this week about not how to vote or who to vote for, but political questions that Christians ought to be thinking through. And, um, as I'm getting in a debate with someone, uh, an old friend who's moved away and now he's in, in Illinois, um, his black and white understanding of everything just bothered me because I said like, you do realize that whoever wins was supposed to win. Like, the election, nothing will shock God. Like, as much as you might hate the idea, you do know God put Obama in the White House twice. 
And he put the first Clinton in the White House. As much as you hate that idea, Romans 13 tells us as much. Like there is no government that is beyond the scope of God's sovereign hand. And so I just told, like he hated this. And I, and I said, and I'm not, I'm not her fan at all. But you need to come to the grips with the fact that God might want Hillary in the White House. And he just, he had no framework <laughs> to understand that. I just said, well, you need to read your Bible a little more because like that might be the case. I sincerely hope the Lord has another way. I do. But whatever happens in November, like I'm just going to have to say, well, this is what's supposed to happen. It's not like we outvoted God. And he's like, man, I wish a couple of people would have got that right. It's like, no, Romans 13 says that he is in control of even the things that we hate and the things that feel absolutely oppressive. Yes? In, in the idea of justice in Isaiah, it went beyond just the legal court. It had to do with your responsibility towards people. It wasn't just if it's right, whether you were speeding or not speeding. It, it had to do with fulfilling a relationship. And if, if we're going to talk about God's wrath, we ought to talk about that the reason the wrath comes is because God is demanding justice. Yep. It's, yeah. And he, and, he would, and he would insist on a degree of justice that transcends legal code. Um, the, the Israelite ethic goes far and above any, any ancient legal code would require. Um, you know, just like I don't think that the legality of things like abortion settles it for me. Like there's a moral issue that transcends legality. Um, and, and God is holding them to a standard that's far above that of the courts. Now, he will talk about corrupt courts. And, uh, but he talks about a corrupt heart as being far more dangerous. Actually, corrupt heart is what breeds corrupt courts. So, um, so he, he, he deals with the religious sins, also talks about the solution, and then he gets into society, social sins. And this runs all the way to 26. He says this. Um, let me skip through a few verses so we can make sure we get done. He says in verse 23, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves, corrupt rulers. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And then you see the divine prerogative. Therefore, Yahweh declares, or the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross or your impure metals as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first. So there's not only a purifying, there's not only like a, it, it, God's judgment isn't simply punitive, it's corrective. It is meant to bring about restoration. He doesn't punish just to well, you need to be punished. He punishes to restore. It's a, it's a corrective measure. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of, the righteous, of righteousness, the faithful city. And then he goes into this last section which deals with the tension between judgment and hope. He kind of ends this. Judgment and hope. 27 and to the end and follow. He says this, Zion will be redeemed by justice. 
Now watch as justice and judgment um, are, are kind of overlapped. Zion will be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. Kind of this, it goes on to talk about kind of this, this uh, religious pilfering and storing up of one's own personal gain and treasures. Verse 31, And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So that ends this first section where Isaiah says, you will be judged because you continue to sin despite the obvious experience of a nation truly suffering under judgment and no longer living in, as God's covenant people. And then he gets into chapter 2, and this is going to be the longest kind of section. He deals with their sin as it runs contrary to their election. And this is going to be chapters 2 all the way through 4. He's, uh, in, in the rest of our chapters today, you're going to see him hold up the ideal against the actual. The ideal against the actual. The, the true Jerusalem against what you guys are actually experiencing over and against the coming new Jerusalem. So, in verse 2... Or chapter 2, we have first the ideal Jerusalem. Just the first couple of verses, 2 through 4. He says this. You have the kind of the, the next series of visions, the, the heading, the word that Isaiah, the son, of, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. Um, one quick aside, it's sometimes we can get wrapped up in, what does that mean, what does that mean, what does that mean? This, these sections in your Bible really are kind of, they're more helpful if you hear them, and don't fixate on little tiny words. And this, it's almost like feel the weight of the whole section because he's intentionally using imagery and he's stacking it and he's wanting to just hit you with a picture instead of making you study. It's not as logical and linear as, say, a Pauline letter. It's just not. So we have to hear this. Um, and if you really want to grasp poetry really well, listen to it. Listen to it in multiple translations. Um, a few months ago when we went up to Ozark to interview Mark Scott, one of Jim's old professors, and he's now a professor again at Ozark, about the best ways to read Matthew, which is kind of a book that he has studied his entire life. He's kind of a specialist in Matthew. And he said, while he knows how to read in the original language, he knows his Greek, and he can break the text down like that, he says, like, people don't have to do that. He says, it's helpful if you're going to write a commentary, if you're going to teach at a Bible college, to be able to read the original language. But he said what he does is he opens up his Bible software on his computer. You have it on your phone. It's called Uversion. And he said he reads his passage in every English translation he can find. And he says, you do realize like I'm sitting under the best Greek scholars we can find. 
and there's 50 of them, if there's 50 English translations, and by the time I've read it all, I've done my Greek work. Like, I know what the, what the translations... I'm not smarter than these translators. And so it, it really helped me see, wow, if we read in a multitude of, of translations, we can know the text. We don't have to be unsure about, wow, the, English, the ESV is just so wooden and stiff. It's, it's just kind of a complicated text that's really choppy and tries to be too linear or literal. If I read the gamut, I say if you read five, you're pretty good. Um, just my own recommendation is I read, when I, when I get ready to teach, I read ESV, NIV, NLT, which I don't like, message, and um, NRSV. I don't read the NASV because that is torture. But literal, not really literal, not really literal, not even trying to be literal, couldn't even be further from literal. But after I read that kind of that, that wide spectrum, I can come in here and say, I think I know what this word should be. Um, and so, anyway, all that to say, when we read Isaiah, don't get hung up on things, just feel the weight of the whole passage. So, chapter 2, he's dealing with the ideal Jerusalem, and he says um, that there's going to be something about the city in the latter days, kind of the day of the Lord that maybe um, the Apostle John's going to pick up, the, the last days, that's what, that's what uh, Isaiah is pointing towards. He says there's going to be something about God's city that draws in the nations. Um, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant was not a covenant towards Israel as much as it's a covenant with Israel about the whole world. He's going to be a blessing to all the nations. Many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. There's going to, the nations are going to want to obey God, we, that we can walk in his paths. For out of Zion, or Jerusalem, shall go the law, or the, the Lord's kind of um, instructions. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between nations. You're going to have God sitting as the arbiter of peace, the arbiter of right and wrong, shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Another way of saying worldwide peace. Worldwide peace. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the ideal Jerusalem. Now you're going to see he's going to, he's going to contradict almost every point there as he talks about, now let me tell you how you actually are. And you're going to see it's anything but peaceful, it's anything but attractive to the nations, and it's anything but an obedience to the, to the Lord's law. So if the ideal Jerusalem is that... Five through four one. This is a long section. We won't read it all. Although I might. You guys tell me which of the Lord's words you want to ignore, and I'll stop reading. <laughs> he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. If you're a note taker, you might scribble down Deuteronomy four verses five through eight. There is a connection here to the, the nation of Israel and their ability to demonstrate God's character through their obe obedience to Him, to the nations. And I think that Isaiah is pulling on that thread a little bit from Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. 
This God, he's, he's going to give us the reasons for judgment in the next few verses. Because they are full of things from the east. That would mean the eastern nations, Babylon, Assyria, pagan nations as he would call them. And of fortune tellers like the Philistines to the west. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Now if you go back to verse 2, it says, All the nations shall flow to Jerusalem. Over here in verse 6, you're striking hands with the children of foreigners. Rather than bringing in the nations to worship God, you're going to battle against them. This is, this is what Jerusalem actually was. Their land, Jerusalem, is filled with silver and gold. <laughs> in verse 3, it says that their land is supposed to be full of people, but rather it's full of treasure. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. Horses in the Old Testament aren't, oh, I love horses. These are instruments of war. There's no reason to have a horse. You don't plow fields with horses. There are other animals. for The only reason you would have horses is to pull chariots and to mount archers. So contrary to verse 4, he shall judge between the nations, shall dis decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But over here in verse 7, their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands. <laughs> It should say in verse at the end of verse three, out of the law, out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That should be its export. Rather, they're crafting idols. Rather than the Lord's words and his instruction, they're crafting idols. Verse nine. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verse four. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. The arbiter of right and wrong, the one who can judge true versus evil, good versus evil, says, do not forgive. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. You're going to see this picture now of God being exalted over all these things that have mocked His name. And from the splendor of His majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Now here you're going to see the poetry start to take shape. Here the, re the repetition of against all, against all, against all is going to hold, is going to take up anything that might be impressive to you and say, God is exalted above even that. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. It's a list of the treasures and the impressive things of the ancient world. And it says, He will be exalted far and above all those things. Verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Now he's going to go after their gods. Verse 18, And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks. 
in the holes of the ground and from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, and they shall make, they shall make for them, which they made for themselves to worship. And then, um, blah, 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 verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? That is kind of the tagline of the whole section, is you've become infatuated with a finite creature. Someone who had to have life breathed into them, who can't create anything that's not some sort of false idol. Has no creative power, has no authority, has no divine prerogative, and you stop regarding mankind. And you have to assume that Isaiah's audience, the nation, are, have spent their lives regarding rulers and wealth and idols as impressive. Those nations that were terrified of as impressive. You'll see when it comes to Hezekiah, Egypt as someone who can help. And this line is probably a very, very valuable one to circle. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And I've read that, and I, I think I've circled it three times as I've continued to read through this passage, and I just think, how modern is that temptation? I just thought, wow, 2016 election right there. And Isaiah just calls it foolishness to take any sort of like absolute hope in something like that. Doesn't mean we don't get involved, but Isaiah says make sure it's in the right spot. He goes. I'm sorry. If you read this, you kind of get the sense that maybe he's saying that, like, I don't know, pride specifically is kind of. That would be the under. It would be one that I don't know how you pull it apart from any other sin. It's got to be involved. I mean, anything where you run against the grain of how God has ordered things to be is, just by definition, pride. And an, and an overinflated view in yourself or someone else. Do you have something? Just, there's a paradoxical thing here. And the paradox is that you want to be, to desire the social justice because God desires it, and therefore you have to be involved in it. But the, the flip side of it is that God can take care of it when it goes awry. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's sort of paradoxical because in some ways the book involves you in social justice maybe as much as any book in the whole scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And therefore ignoring what goes on in a nation is not the thing that Isaiah is asking us to do. Yeah. Don't get too distraught about it, but certainly involve yourself. Yeah, it's... It's have it rightly ordered in terms of importance um, and have a right understanding of like, the limitations of whatever it is you're trusting in and make sure that Yahweh is exalted above all else. But it, yeah, it, they, the nation is judged for, if you go back to chapter 1, for doing evil, not doing good, not seeking justice, oppressing others, and not bringing justice to widows and orphans. Like, he judges them for that and says, like, part of your way of remedying the situation is to do those things, to bring justice to those who can't defend themselves. But, um, for the sake of time, you're welcome to read the rest of chapter 3 yourself. It just, it goes on and it is a laundry list of Israel's sins and reasons that they will be judged, um, including um, a debased leadership, um, 
social oppression, and then you'll see the leadership brought to trial, and then you'll see Israel compared to a, a promiscuous woman at the end of chapter 3, and then um, at the, that first little verse of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So if he's described the, the ideal Jerusalem, and then he tells them how they really are, the rest of chapter 4 tells us of the new Jerusalem. The one that none of Isaiah's hearers will experience, and the one that we will experience. I go to 6. It says this, In that day, and, this, and I don't even want to offer tons of commentary on this. This is just such a powerful section on its own. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the branch, this is a very, I can't not offer commentary. Uh, the branch is, uh, it's kind of a polyvalent symbol. It means several things depending on how much you want to emphasize. The branch could literally be the nation and it could literally be the Messiah. And I think that Isaiah kind of means both. So we're going to let him speak, and we're not going to bury ourselves in that word too much. In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left, think remnant, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth, there's that cleansing idea, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, um, a purifying spirit. You could read that. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. This is where your Exodus theology, your Exodus imagery has to come back. That is the symbol of God's presence, of Him with His people as both a guide and a protective agent. A cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. And the canopy there, it's kind of hard for us to, to grab this, but Isaiah's people would have got it. That is specifically talking about a wedding ceremony. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. And rain. So in this new Jerusalem, you have a purified nation who is again obedient, who now is experiencing the presence of the Lord. This, this tells us of the lack of the Lord's presence with the nation. And he says, here's what it's going to look like when it comes back. And then chapter 5, we have the other section of Israel's sin, which Israel continues to sin in the face of grace and mercy offered by God. So, first, um, we have the vineyard. He describes the nation as a vineyard, as one where they have got, they've been worked over by the ultimate gardener and where the nation is still decaying and utterly destroyed. It's the, it has been a perfectly worked garden, a perfectly tended garden that has gone perfectly bad. So, here's what he says. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. And he'll tell us what that vineyard is. Um, if you want to see a parallel, go to Ezekiel 15, verses 2 through 5. 
Good section on the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out of a wine, out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. This is a well-tended, well-constructed, well-planned garden. But it yielded wild grapes, he says. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? This is God saying, I did everything necessary for my nation. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And then it kind of gives the concluding thought. Now I will tell you what I'll do with this vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then he tells us what the vineyard is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, that's the vineyard. And then he's going to talk about, and this is where it just ends on a dark note, the rotten fruit of this vineyard. Five, eight to the end. So, we won't read all of this, but I'll find some... Um, So he talks about kind of there's this prosperity motive. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, who abuse the the land that was assigned as they as they went into the promised land. You're not supposed to to profit off of your neighbors in terms of the buying and selling land. These borders aren't supposed to be touched. This land was given as part of the covenant, as part of the conquest of Canaan. That's why when you have to lease it out to make payments on whatever at Every so often, the, land, the boundaries are reset because we're not going to take advantage of people like this. And it says, you're joining house to house. You're adding field to field. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. He goes on, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, <laughs> who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. He jumped jumped down. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Now He's going to give appropriate judgment. Therefore, my people will go into exile. The land is being removed. Watch the covenant be dismantled because of their unfaithfulness to it. They will go into exile. There goes the land for lack of knowledge. Their honored men will go hungry. There goes provision. And their multitude parched with thirst. Good things that God promises. A land flowing with milk and honey, food and drink. And a land that you will have forever, God says, you're not going to have it anymore. And I'm not going to give you anything to eat, and you're not going to get anything to drink. You have forsaken your obedience to me. You've forsaken the covenant. Therefore, I'm withdrawing my end of the covenant. This is, these are the covenant stipulations at the end of Deuteronomy. Therefore, watch total judgment rain down on the nation. Sheol has enlarged its appetite. Death will start to rain down and opened its mouth beyond measure. Man is humbled, verse 15. Each one is brought low. 
And then look at this, con- contrasted with verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. Watch as he puts justice and righteousness by each other. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads eat among the ruins of the rich. He said, your nation's going to be crippled. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. He says, you've just gone after sin. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That reminds me a lot of today. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. I love that line. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And then you see the judgment come again. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and the dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness. You see the rotten fruit. And their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Um, the rest of this chapter, you see total destruction as God continues to break them down, break them down. Um, you can read the rest of that if you like. Um, some concluding thoughts is, this is Isaiah's introduction. Six is actually Isaiah's formal calling as a prophet. This is his introduction to the book. And, he's, and we see in here the, the overlap of justice and mercy. We see in here the, um, the contrast of sin and righteousness. And we see, of course, judgment. But if you go back to the back half, the back few verses of chapter 4, hope in this new Jerusalem. And this, I think, is kind of a condensed version of probably the whole book. This, is, this truly is an introduction to the rest of Isaiah, and you're going to see this, these themes tumble over themselves as they move throughout the book. So that's first five verses. Next week we'll deal with Isaiah's calling and his, uh, his initial dealings with King Ahaz and the Assyrian army coming. Um, any questions? I know we went flying. Good news is that was only five verses. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do ten or five chapters. We'll do ten in a couple of weeks. But these are five very progressive chapters. The ten will do kind of swirl on themselves, so we won't even have to read that much. Yes. Yes, I forgot to do that this week. So um, those of you who are with me normally, I try to write up a summary of what it is. Um, I forgot to do that this week. So I will do that. I might even do that for this and just retroactively give it to you. And then um, going forward, I'll try to write, I typically write a one-page summary of what it is we're talking about and what I think we should be getting out of it. So I will do that. It just got away from me. So anything else? Let's pray and get in there because those seats will go fast. Father, thank you for this book and for um, the incredible depth that we find here, the incredibly um, wide spectrum of topics and themes and revelation that we couldn't have known short of your giving it to us. 
I pray that as we set off on a long study through a complicated book, that you would give us um, a great deal of wisdom and patience, probably, um, but that we would recognize that there's some reason that so many of your apostles and early church leaders referenced this book as being incredibly valuable for their ministries and for uh, accurate picture of your Messiah. Help us to find those reasons why. Help us to understand you better and uh, help us as we struggle through it. Thank you for this day and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I was going to tell you. <laughs>